I mean, I think there's a good case to be made that lockdown was also kind of a politics of technocratic restoration where you had the empowerment of um, unelected civil servants, technical advisors, scientists, and so on in place of public figures and elected authorities. So you have a pushback and a restorationist politics. But I think it's also the failure of populism itself. It's a creature, populist parties are a creature of the void, but they can't supplant it. And the reason for that is because I think populism by its very nature isn't built around representation. You know, it, the idea and the core, one of the core ideas of populism is this idea that you have, you know, that it's, um, you simply kind of eject this um, remote and haughty elite, you get them off our backs, you throw them out of office, you throw the bums out, and then society spontaneously recalibrates itself into harmony. Um, and that avoids the problem, which is the fact that we need new representative structures, that we need to build institutional mechanisms of representation, that we need to mediate the conflicts that are in civil society. And this is something populists are unable to do. They think it's sufficient simply to scrape off an elite and then you know the, the kind of charismatic authority of the demagogue or the leader will be sufficient and it time and time again it's shown not to be the case i think this is very visible in the european union because what we're seeing is populist governments in power or coming close to the brink of power and they're accommodating themselves to the european union because they're unable to grasp the nettle of genuine representative politics that would require tangling with the European Union and potentially seceding from the European Union. And they're too weak to do that. So, you know, we saw Marine Le Pen kind of retreat from the idea of Frexit or retreat from France seceding from the Eurozone. Marine Le Pen, the populist hard right leader of the um, national rally in France and potential next president of France, or Giorgia Maloney of the Brothers of Italy. You know, she kind of made some noises about being anti-EU while in opposition, but now she's in office in Italy. You know, she's on the phone to the previous technocratic um, leader, Mario Draghi. She makes sure that he clears the way for her in Brussels and she ensures that she doesn't say anything that will spook the bond market with Italy being a member of the Eurozone and therefore unable to control its own national currency. So I think what we're seeing is a complementarity between the European Union and populist government, that they pose no threat, quite the opposite. You know, They actually allow for people to um, feel that there is kind of an anti-establishment voice, whereas the real structures of decision-making continue to be um, outside of the reach of ordinary voters. You are one of the co-authors of this book, Taking Control, Sovereignty and Democracy After Brexit, along with George Horley Jones and Peter Ramsey. Can you give me a, a sense of how this book came together? Yeah. So back in 2015, when the referendum on the British referendum on membership of the European Union was announced, my immediate instinct was to think that this was going to be the single most important question in British politics for a generation. Um, it had been brewing for a while on the back benches of the Tory party, but when it became um, more or less inescapable, I suppose, for David Cameron, um, as he never expected to get a majority, he expected, my understanding is that he expected to be in co have a coalition government again with the Lib Dems, and therefore he was had the political room to offer his backbenchers a referendum on membership of the European Union in order to 
quieted them. And then he expected, I think, to trade it away in coalition negotiations. So that was back in 2014-15. After that, after the referendum, I have to say, though I expected it to be the single most important question in British politics, I didn't expect the level of hostility and the extreme irrationality of the um, elites, uh, the professional middle classes, major public institutions, um, the wealthy capitalist elites in banking, the multinational, you know, multinational corporations and all of their kind of associated um, affiliates and so on, as well as major newspapers. I never expected the intensity of hostility that came in response to the referendum because I assumed, you know, it was kind of a, it was a plebiscite in the context of uh, stable liberal democracy. And I assume that all of those people would be able to accommodate to, to this you know, new reality without any great kind of erosion of their status, their political influence, or indeed their living standards. So that was, I think, a it was a mistake not to anticipate the degree of hostility to it, not to anticipate just how many, how much um, certain basic aspects of liberal democracy had been so eroded already that the ruling elites were determined not to, you know, were determined to kind of keep the territory they had seized in the preceding 30 years. And so it was in that context that I got involved in helping to set up a campaigning network of various left-leaning um, but pro-Brexit academics, analysts, journalists, including some um, politicians, called the Full Brexit. And so we, it was this um, group um, was involved essentially in trying to ensure that a second referendum didn't happen, which seemed to be um, a very realistic prospect and came quite close. The legislation came quite close at certain moments um, to passing through Parliament and only you know, a handful of votes essentially prevented us from having a second referendum on the prior referendum um, in 2019. So all of this is its long-winded answer, but I suppose I'm trying to establish the political context in which um, me and my co-authors um, sought to distill the experience of those years. Um, and so all four of me, my co-authors and I, we were all members of the full Brexit in one way or another. And though this book isn't, um, you know, it's not a kind of a, a project that comes out of the full Brexit, it distills the political experience that we all gained as individuals as part of um, fighting in the aftermath of the Brexit referendum and trying to maintain the the hard kind of gain of the Brexit referendum, which was the idea of political equality, that all citizens' votes should count including those who were, you know, kind of disenfranchised, working class, um, marginalised and excluded in all sorts of various ways. It was one of the most class correlated votes in British politics in decades. And also one in which every, it was every individual, you know, every voter's vote counted because it was a plebiscite rather than running by the first past the post system that is used for general elections. And so we chose taking control because in contrast to the slogan that was coined by Dominic Cummings, one of the architects of the Leave campaign, we chose taking control because we understood something that we did understand and we wanted to make clear was there was no going back. 
So the idea that you could take back control suggested that it was possible to recreate an independent British nation state or an independent British state once you seceded from the European Union, as if it was simply like, you know, a lever snapping back into place. And whatever, you know, whatever things that we underestimated or perhaps misunderstood or didn't anticipate in the context of the Brexit, in the politics of the, the, all the conflicts over Brexit, something that we were, I think, clear about was that there was no possibility of returning. What had to be done was that a new kind of political system, a new kind of popular and national sovereignty had to be created as part of the process of seceding from the European Union. So that's a long, and you know, I, like I say, apologies to you and your listeners for such a long-winded answer, but I wanted to make sure um, to provide as much context as possible in with regards to your question. And one of the points that you make so well in the book is um, the fact that this question of national sovereignty is a lot deeper than even Brexiteers or um, Europhiles really appreciated. Um, it's not that, as, as Brexiteers would have it at their worst, that um, you know policymakers were simply hapless and had their hands tied by the EU and simply exiting the European Union would, would solve this issue. Um, you make the point that it's it's actually much deeper than this. And I want I want to come to that. But a lot of my listeners are American and may not have a sense of what it was like during the lead up to the referendum. So can you kind of give us a sense of what this referendum stood for for P, for, for different constituencies and, and why it mattered and indeed why they should care if that's not too much? <laughs> No, indeed, you know, and I appreciate like um, it can seem kind of remote and parochial um, to, you know, many people around the world. But I think it was um, world historic significance. Um, I don't think it's too conceited or problematic to say that. And I think also, you know, it's one of the few kind of successful results of the various kind of wave of populist insurrections that have washed over um, Western political systems over the last 10, 15 years or so in the aftermath of the great financial crash of 2008. I mean, if we think of other manifestations of this populist wave, such as Trump in the States um, or, you know, Syriza in Greece um, or indeed, um, you know, kind of you could also say, you know, Marine Le Pen in France and all sorts of other kind of various smaller political formations and parties, none of them have really succeeded They've either been pushed out of office, disintegrated, or rolled back from their most ambitious pledges, whereas Brexit was, um, you know, succeeded. And part of the reason for that was that it was something which was not just associated with a single political leader or a single political party or campaign. So it was by nature of being a plebiscite on a constitutional question, just to say membership of this larger entity, the European Union, it meant that it um, wouldn't stand or fall with the success of any one particular group, that it was larger than all of the kind of various political forces involved. And so I think that made it, in one sense, that made it fundamentally different. In the run-up to, um, run to the referendum in June 2016, it was a very odd period for me, you know, so I'm a politics lecturer, as we, as I said at the beginning, and usually when I talk to people and they ask me what I do, you know, hairdressers or, I don't know, cabbies or, you know, people just in random kind of ordinary conversation in queues waiting for the train or whatever, I don't know, you know, you mentioned, oh, you know, I'm a politics academic, it's obviously enough to kind of kill the conversation stone dead or to move on to a new topic very quickly. 
And the run-up to the referendum was the only time in my life that people actually um, pumped me for my view, for information. And not that they were especially deferring to me. You know, I saw quite a few people kind of assumed that I would be pro-European, you know, pro-EU in our discussions. But they, um, they wanted, you could see they wanted information. And so it was this intent, I've never in my life, as an adult at least, in, in British politics in Britain, I've never experienced the that level of politics dividing kind of friendships. I mean, both in, you know, uh, among my own friendships, as well as colleagues and friends I know who also had friendships fractured, that it divided the dining room table. You know, there was division over Brexit in my own family. Um, that it divided so starkly some of the nations of the UK, Scotland and England, um, most kind of noticeably, uh, that it also was such a kind of intense moment of public discussion um, over a basic question, basic constitutional question, and that people took it so seriously. Um, that was also very striking. It didn't have the kind of the frivolous or superficial character of previous political moments. And so it all confirmed that something, you know, that it was a genuine and meaningful political question um, for whatever reason. And I think, you know, there are kind of all sorts of reasons one could find for it. Um, but I think when, you know, when ordinary voters, ordinary kind of working class people, but many others as well, when they saw Obama, who was president at the time, he came to the UK. Barack Obama has begun a three-day visit to the UK. Smiles and waves for the camera, but a stark message for the British people, that if Britain votes out of the EU, the United States would have very little interest in doing trade with it. Maybe some point down the line, there might be a, a UK-US trade agreement, but it's not gonna happen anytime soon because our focus is in negotiating with a big block, the European Union, to get a trade agreement done. And UK is going to be in the back of the queue. And he used the British word queue rather than back of the line, as an American would say, and made it clear, basically, that it had been fed the lines by the Cameron government. So when I think, you know, when ordinary voters saw American, the American president, um, leading bankers, um, all major politicians of the established parties, industrialists, captains of industry, um, you know, kind of famous faces and celebrities off television, when they saw them all lining up, encouraging everyone to vote for the European Union, I think the British public correctly intuited that there was an extraordinary opportunity to make a strike against um, elite the views of the elite kind of broadly conceived and they intuited correctly. So it was an extraordinary moment in British politics. And I suppose for the benefit of American listeners, you know, it, to make clear another way in which it was different from, say, the Trump kind of election, which happened in the same year in 2016. You know, if you look at the breakdown of the um, votes for Trump, most people voted for their political party, which is to say most people voted for Democrats and most most Democrats voted for the Democrats and most Republicans voted for the Republicans. You know, um, so it was kind of despite all of Trump's kind of insurrectionist energy, it was very much kind of a it was very much a kind of most of the politics of the Trump era nonetheless went along partisan lines. What was different about the Brexit referendum was that it broke up the existing partisan system within the UK. 
And that was principally down to, um, not entirely, but mainly down to a set of constituencies that became known as the Red Wall. Because um, if you look at them on a map, it looks like those kind of geographical districts look like a kind of Red Wall in the north of England and the Midlands. Um, and these were traditionally Labour strongholds, some of them going back even to their foundation as constituencies. And very strikingly, these old, some of them kind of very old working class constituencies, Rust Belt constituencies, deindustrialized constituencies, they swung, despite the fact that the Labour Party was so strongly in favour of the European Union, uh, they swung against uh, the European Union and they voted for Brexit multiple times, not only in the referendum of 2016, but also they voted for the Tories in 2019 as part of the demand to ensure that we did eventually, that we did secede from the European Union which was only finally accomplished, formal, we only formally withdrew in early 2020. So nearly, nearly four years after the actual vote itself, which gives you an indication of the bitterness and intensity of those few years. So I hope that helps to um, put listeners um, in the picture, particularly those who might not be fully, you know, fully kind of familiar with the details of the referendum. You mentioned you use the phrase world historic significance. Can you kind of explain that a little bit more? So what what made this so significant? Because, you know, if you if you speak to people who were Remainers, they will say that, no, it was low information voters who were duped by a bus, etc. <laughs> so why do you disagree with that um, appraisal? Yeah, I mean, I suppose some Remainers might admit that it was world historic kind of in its scale, but they would see it as a, you know, kind of as a mistake. Like you say, the error of ill-informed voters who um, shouldn't be entrusted with such significant, long-lasting political decisions, um, you know, that ordinary people, the complexity of the globe, the functioning of the global economy and the interrelationship of states in the European Union, all of this is kind of beyond the scope of ordinary voters. And they, if if it wasn't out of sheer stupidity and clumsiness, you know, and kind of willful spite, which is what many Remainers, those who wanted to remain in the European Union, many of them would still say, I think. The more generous ones might say, oh, you know, well, it was kind of a big, it was a big but catastrophic mistake. If you vote for Brexit and then the next day, the most Google thing was, what is the EU? I'm sorry, that doesn't show a very bright person. I'm sorry, that is how it is. How can you vote? Well, you also, don't know, can... D, you, you, okay. hang on, you don't know who did that Googling. That could have been right. a Lever or a well, Remainer. You know something? That thousands of people voted, uh, Googled, you know, what is the yeah. EU. Furthermore, could you're looking either. at Wales. Listen to this. You vote, look at Wales who voted out, and yet they get a lot of subsidies from the EU. And how are they going to sell their Welsh lamb? Okay, there's another one. What about car plant uh, towns like Dagenham who voted out? Now we are having the problem where a lot of those car companies are going to move out because a lot of those parts come from all over Europe so they can put the cars together and they're going to be taxed. So well, it's we'll not find going out. to be worth their You're work. right, we'll find out. But I don't yeah. think... I, yeah, you, you seem to be saying, blanket statement, unless I'm mishearing you, um, people who voted Brexit are stupid. Um, I'm sorry, 
but I do believe they were stupid because this country no longer has colonies, can no longer rely on people, you know, from their continent to be able to come and do the jobs that a lot of the people want to do. But we are a big country with a big market. Yeah, and who are you going to sell these things to once you're out of the EU? Well, Europe still, on different bases. Yeah, and you're going to be taxed for it. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. And I, and I really, you know, I am looking forward to seeing what's going to happen. I really am. Um, you know, because at the end of the day, it's, you know, it's going to affect us all. It certainly is. Dee, thank you. Dee and Streatham. Uh, all Brexiters are stupid. The reason it's world historical, I think, is because it is a secession of a major advanced economy a major industrialized economy from a new system of global governance that had developed in the 30 or so years since the end of the Cold War. And this is kind of tied to the point that you made earlier, where politicians would deliberately lower public expectations and popular aspirations by integrating themselves into various kinds of supranational free trade organizations, but other kinds of organizations as well. And they would kind of willingly tie their own hands and say, you know, we can't do this because of this agreement or that agreement. In Britain, it was we can't do it because, you know, this has been agreed at the European level and we can't go against, um, you know, this kind of uh, we can't go against. It's too complicated and difficult to go against an internationally binding agreement. So the European Union was the most highly developed, the most concentrated form of this new kind of politics of rule in the Western world. And so what made Brexit world historic was the fact that you had a popular revolt at the ballot box um, that succeeded in formally withdrawing Britain from the European Union. Um, you know, and there are other examples of this. I mean, the one, the obvious one in North America would be NAFTA. Um, but obviously the European Union, um, NAFTA for all of its faults, the European Union is much worse. You talked about the breakdown of the people who voted for Brexit. And I don't know, people might be surprised to learn that there's a lot of continuity here, that um, Labour was always um, profoundly uh, suspicious of European institutions. Um, Can you delve into that in a little bit more detail? What is the history of the trade union movement and uh, its relationship with with Europe or European institutions of sort of supranational governance? Yeah, sure. So, um, I mean, essentially, the European Union, I mean, when it was founded, it was founded famously as the um, coal and steel community. So it was a way of binding France and Germany together. So it began as this attempt to rebuild capitalism in the devastated economies of Western Europe. And at the time, this was in the late 1940s, at the time it was um, the Labour government, the post-war Labour government that was in charge under Clement Attlee, um, famous for kind of building the post-war social democratic state. And in that moment, and certainly up until at least the 1970s, the Labour Labour Party and Labour movement was, including the trade unions, was to a great extent very hostile to European Union for the simple reason that they, you know, they saw it as a way of binding um, binding the decisions that gov- restricting the scope of government decision making. Um, and they were very clear about that, that it was a way to block nationalizations. It was a way to protect private property. And it was generally a way to constrain you know, the exercise of popular will. 
And um, to their credit, you know, for all their sins, at least to their credit, the labor movement understood that in that period. And so with the first referendum on membership of the European Union or the European Economic Community, as it was in 1975, when Britain joined um, the organization, you know, what kind of roles were reversed? It was the Labour Party that was bitterly divided over whether Britain should be a member of the European Union. Um, and on the other side, um, the Tories were very pro it. There's a famous um, photo of Margaret Thatcher, the Tory prime minister, though she was, you know, she was a junior minister at the time, but she was campaigning for it and she was she was campaigning for membership. Good evening. Well, Britain has now had two years of experience within the European community. And on Thursday, as you all know, we'll be voting whether to stay in the common market or to leave it. And Newsday's guest tonight is Mrs. Margaret Thatcher, the leader of the Conservative Party, who will be talking about her own ideas about the European question after the news tonight from Angela Rippon. Good evening. The National Union of Railwomen have called a national strike starting on June the 23rd, and our industrial correspondent tells us the strike is to go on indefinitely. The NUR's executive made the decision early this evening, after voting 21 votes to 3 to reject an arbitration tribunal's recommendation of a 27.5% pay rise. And the strike at Heathrow Airport by British Airways maintenance men is to continue. The men today endorsed a recommendation by their shop stewards that a proposed peace formula wasn't acceptable. But it looks as though the three-week-old strike at the Chrysler engine plant at Coventry could end on Wednesday. Shop stewards there decided today to recommend the 4,000 men involved to go back. The position of the trade unions on the common market was a major theme in the referendum campaign today. One of the biggest unions, the General and Municipal Workers, voted at their annual conference to maintain their pro-market attitude. But at today's anti-market news conference, Mr Len Murray confirmed the TUC's view that for the sake of more jobs, it was better for Britain to be out than in. I think it's absolutely vital that everyone should turn out in this referendum and vote yes, so that the question is over once and for all. We are really in Europe and ready to go ahead. You get consensus when you get unity of purpose. Do you think now, will... we shouldn't have mm. unity of purpose, as far as I'm concerned, with a part of a party which wished to nationalise practically everything. So you couldn't have a consensus there where there are two obviously different viewpoints. Whereas by the time you get to 2016, 2019, the roles have reversed. The Labour Party is um, all, you know, kind of tied by an umbilical cord to Brussels, whereas it's the Tory party that's bitterly divided over membership. And that, I think, speaks to what happened in the interim period, which was the defeat of the labor movement, the defeat of trade union movement, the defeat of the organized working class. And it was in the context of that defeat in the 80s and just how brutal and confrontational it was in Britain, particularly with the miners' strike in the early 1980s, um, that the labor movement and its political representatives basically retreated into the European Union. Um, or the, e the European Community, as it was um, prior to the Europe, you know, prior to being constituted as the European Union, and so it became this kind of hinterland, this refuge, where they could, um, you know, cook up kind of grand aspirations with other um, left-wing parties and left-wing movements and the institutions that were provided by um, at the European level, and they could hope that they could salvage something in that hinterland because they'd been beaten back at the national level. And as they kind of, you know, as they stewed there in defeat, they grew increasingly disenchanted 
um, and uh, pessimistic about the possibility of winning people back at the national level, of winning the masses over. And so they became accustomed to thinking of politics about as locking things in at the supranational level. And so this is, you know, by the time we get to 2016, the majority of the trade union movement, the majority of the labor movement understands the European Union as a protection, as a kind of set of safety, safety rails from the ravages of neoliberalism. And that's the kind of swap that happens between 1945 and 2016. I'm not sure if the connection between the defeat of labor and the retreat into the EU is, is totally clear. So why, why is the EU a logical next step after Thatcher defeats the, the trade union movement in the 80s? So there's a moment in which, um, I mean, you know, there were other ways in which this kind of retreat happens, I think. I mean, one of the ways, you know, one of the telling ways is also at the margins of the left, say, with the far left, you have the retreat, retreat I think, into kind of various third world solidarity campaigns. Um, you've got, say, the live aid movement, which happens in the late 1980s over the Ethiopian famine and the development of the humanitarian sector. And those are also other kind of modes in which the left retreats. But the European Union in particular um, was a was one of those havens of retreat. Um, and this, I think, is for a number of reasons. So partly it's because it appeared as if it was internationalist. And so it appeared um, as kind of being in line with the left's internationalist rather than nationalist kind of disposition and posture. So it had that kind of superficial sheen that appealed to the left, the idea that they could rub shoulders with people from abroad who thought in the same way and wanted the same things and that kind of, you know, provided some degree of compensation for the losses that they suffered at the national level. But also it was um, one of the commissioners of the European Union or the EEC um, was the figure called Jacques Delors in the early 1990s. And he promoted this idea of a social Europe. He explicitly, part of the design of the commission of the time was explicitly to build constituencies for the European Union by picking up the kind of... Um, the losers or the kind of malcontents of national political systems. So this kind of part of the strategy was cultivating um, autonomy, kind of regional separatist and autonomous movements, but also building support among the trade unions of Europe and encouraging them to kind of cooperate at the European level, but also providing a vision of Europe as a so-called social Europe. So not a Europe of the free market or a Europe of capitalism, but a Europe in which you could build um, social protections against the market. And so all of this was, I think, tremendously appealing um, in the late 1980s, early 1990s, and ever since to a labor movement that had largely lost its working class base, in which the trade unions, particularly in the private sector, had been smashed up, and it had become dominated increasingly by the middle classes. And the idea of Europe as this haven from from the crude, you know, the crude kind of more nationalistic and conceited and selfish working classes, that became ever stronger over that period. In the first chapter, you make this really strong case, you and co-authors, uh, make this very strong case um, where you sort of walk through this history of the what politics was like briefly during a brief period between the 1940s and the 1970s. And you talk about how um, the Labour Party had pursued this national project um, that that was that it was a it was a national project that was associated with the Labour Party, which now people kind of view as like, oh, that's a bit fashy, but it's very much associated with the Labour Party that you had to have 
national sovereignty before you could push for other kinds of um, um, you know connections internationally um, and that it was pursued through things like full employment um, economic development and so on and it is a kind of you know the labor party is full of working people and so on and then gradually people with working class backgrounds move to something like two percent of the of the labor party um, but you know an unsympathetic reader might say well this is a bit of a, a nostalgic kind of rendering and you mentioned before there's no going back so, you know, the current working class is not in favor of nationalization of industry in the way that they had been in the post-war period where, you know, the idea of planning that had been going on during the Second World War kind of showed people, look, we can carry this planning forward. And it was more or less non-controversial amongst working people. Now that's highly controversial. Do you not see the kind of defeat of someone like Jeremy Corbyn as maybe emblematic of the fact that they're there isn't any going back. That working class that was anti-EU for pro-labor reasons is dead. Yeah, so the the idea of um, we take that kind of history of Britain is the one that we give in the book is largely inspired by a historian at King's College London called David Edgerton. And he makes the case that Britain was only really a nation state um, understood in a kind of straightforward sense between, you know, roughly the 1940s and the late 1970s, um, because prior to then, Britain was kind of the core or the hub of a global liberal empire. And when you have the voting in of the Labour government um, in 1945, it's partly a kind of, um, and this is me, not David Edgerton, but, you know, you could see it, I think, kind of as a as a proto-Brexit from the Churchillian vision of global empire, um, which was the alternative that was an offer at the time. And so, you know, working class people voted for um, a state that was able to protect them, that was able to kind of build up, meet their material interests, and that was able to um, offer something back for the tremendous sacrifices they had made um, during the Second World War. And so they were built into the functioning of the state at the time, for better or for worse, you know? I mean, it's kind of obviously their political, they won a meaningful kind of political representation and influence that they hadn't had before, but it also came uh, as part of being integrated into the institutions of the British state as well. So that working class is gone. And, you know, this is something that we're, you know, clear about. But I think the working class of Britain today is also, I mean, for whatever its views on the economy might be, it seems to me it's deeply, it's shown itself repeatedly to be deeply sceptical of the European Union and what it represents. And if you look at the polls, you know, I think there is, I mean, consistent kind of polls show there's significant support not only among the working classes or among people who vote Labour, but also among Tory voters and the middle classes, including Daily Mail readers who are usually taken as a kind of as a um, core sample of uh, Tory voting middle classes, strong support for taking utilities, public utilities and um, privatised railways back under state control. So I don't think it's um, as clear cut as the idea that, you know, there's no public support for greater state involvement um, in the economy at the moment. And the defeat, I'd read the defeat of Corbyn in 2019 somewhat differently. So 
um, there were two elections where Corbyn ran. There was the election in 2017 where Labour did much better than anybody expected and um, ate into, you know, ate into the existing, um, well, they basically kind of came second to the Tories. Everyone thought that, every, you know, there'd be a tremendous kind of turn against Corbyn. Instead, Corbyn did tremendously better. And I think if I'm um, off the top of my head, I think they Labour gained about 30 seats, which was one of their greatest kind of gains of seats in a um, in an election in which they were um, standing as um, uh, as the opposition. So they did significantly well under Corbyn in 2017. In 2019, they collapsed to a low of, that wasn't seen since the 1930s. And the, main, the big difference between the vote in 2017 and the vote in 2019 was the fact that the Labour Party gave up on Brexit in the meantime. And so in 2017, they stood on a platform of respecting the vote, respecting the referendum. And this was enough to keep the pro-Brexit working class on side. When they surrendered that and they conceded um, to having a second referendum, they gave in to their middle class activist base, essentially. In 2019, their working class vote collapsed. And so by 2019, at the end of 2019, when we had the second election with Corbyn as leader of the Labour Party, um, it was a tremendous defeat. And the main difference, like I say, it wasn't Corbyn himself, but rather the fact that they lost the Red Wall constituencies that we may, um, mentioned earlier. The old Labour strongholds in the north of England and the Midlands of England that were strongly pro-Brexit. And so I think, you know, the evidence suggests that there is... I think, I mean, you know, if there's an appetite, there's certainly appetite for change. You know, that seems to me very clear in the kind of political upheavals of the last few years. And what that change looks like is all up for grabs. And the significance of being outside the European Union is that it gives us much more political and legal room to build the kind of um, change that people might want to see without prejudging what it might look like. Um, I mean, this was one of the ironies of the Corbyn movement. They were pro-European Union, even though the European Union has so many restrictions on, say, what the state can do in terms of, um, you know, government involvement in the economy. And so if Corbyn had one, in all likelihood, remaining in the European Union would have restricted the mandate of the Labour Party to kind of uh, involve the state more heavily in the economy. For me, I think it's obvious, but to a lot of people, it comes as a surprise where there's this tendency to think of the EU, as, as you've said, as something that sort of locks in things that are good, you know, progressive policies. There's, you know, they have LGBTIQ mainstreaming, gender mainstreaming, um, and this gets sort of locked in at a, at a higher level and policymakers are forced to more or less um, adapt within various countries, even if their cultures are lagging behind in terms of their understanding of, of equality or whatever it might be, or what a family is, this sort of thing. Actually, what it does is it locks in neoliberal um, economic policy. And actually, I think a lot of the identity stuff that the EU is involved in and sort of mainstreams is neoliberal policy, right? Um, it doesn't care about the shape that a family takes. It doesn't care about your identity. It cares that you integrate into the market. <laughs> That's all it cares about. And anything that might be a, a, a burden on that, including having a family, is a problem. <laughs> and so the EU has a tendency to problematize families and traditional families and so on as this sort of a barrier 
like patriarchal gender norms are a barrier to women supposedly wanting to integrate themselves into the market fully, even though what that means in reality is taking jobs that nobody wants in precarious positions for low pay, part-time, which really means about 30 hours a week, and so on. Um, but I wondered, given what seems so obvious to me, um, very compelling in the book, how people like Varfakis um, have managed to remain so hopeful about the ability to reform. And in fact, if you go back through the history of um, statements from uh, Labour in the UK about the EU, they kind of make similar statements that you hear now, where it's like, well, yes, I would be open to a European Union that was managed for you know social objectives or for the good of the working class, but that's not really going to happen. So they were kind of realistic about it. Whereas I think there's still that hope that exists amongst a lot of Europhiles. How can you explain that? For these sort of intelligent people don't see what I think is so clear. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it, I think, is just wishful, wishful thinking. And, um, you know, what it amounts to, I think, whatever, you know, whatever, whatever kind of psychological place it might come from, or whatever moral place it might come from, a lot of it is